welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. New restrictions for pubs and restaurants announced in the UK to consternation of chefs and students alike. Major whiskey producers condemn sexist language used in the whiskey bible. Zero waste wine range launched by London wine merchant. And as ever, our wine of the week. So let's start with um, our week in wine, which has again been dominated by fires, which have sprung up in Napa Valley, and we do have the uh, stench of smoke, unfortunately, and the um, hazy air as well. Yes, so far um, from this morning's news, we've seen uh, two wineries that have reported extensive damage, Chateau Boswell in St. Helena in Napa Valley, uh, as well as Hourglass, which has holdings in both St. Helena and Calistoga. And that's where the fire started, and now it's creeping over into Sonoma Valley, uh, back near Santa Rosa. Uh, So kind of, you know, very similar to what happened in 2017. So all very concerning for, of course, the communities there, as well as the winemakers who have kind of faced blow after blow during this 2020 harvest. Um, So hopefully we can get the fires contained soon, but for now, lots of smoky air and and flames is kind of has been the new norm here in California. Right. A friend of mine posted a photo on Instagram this morning, and he lives in St. Helena and just showing us a huge uh, ball of smoke just rising up from the vineyard near his house. So it does look... uh, pretty bad again and it's very hot today and yesterday as well which is uh, partly the reason why the fires are returning Uh, but hopefully it will uh, blow away in the right direction like it did last time but it's all very concerning yeah as you say the wind that's also a huge factor in what's causing the spread and the rapid spread so making it really hard for the firefighters to combat it but uh, let's hope for some still cooler days here to come. Yes, and it is predicted to get a a bit cooler um, during the week, so hopefully um, good news ahead. Um, But let's move on to our week in wine, because there have been good things to talk about as well. It's not all doom and gloom. Uh, It was actually my birthday last week, and so Katie very kindly took me out to a restaurant in Sonoma where we ate with some friends, and fantastic wine, fantastic food and a really great experience because we're all outside it's all um socially conditioned as it were and felt very safe and you've been to that restaurant before hadn't you katie um this is my first time yes it's called valley bar and bottle right on the square in sonoma california and they've really prided themselves off of offering a very safe environment to eat out to dine out they have a nice uh, back patio. Uh, everyone, you know, really adhere, adheres to the the mask wearing regulations. And uh, not only the servers, but they also encourage the patrons, the guests, to also wear them uh, when staff approaches the tables, uh, just so they can provide a really safe experience. So, and not to mention their wine list is amazing, um, and their food is very very good as well. So glad you enjoyed it, Matthew. Yes, and it was finished off by mousse au chocolat, which is one of my favorite desserts, which one which you don't really see uh, too often in California, and it was extremely good. And I have very high expectations when it comes to mousse au chocolat, and they were certainly met. And then continuing the California theme, um, Katie organized again a, a California webinar, and this time it was uh, featuring Oz Clark, one of the legendary wine writers of the British um, industry and the world, and also Richard Siddle, editor of The Buyer who is a a good friend of ours. And that was an absolutely fantastic seminar because they had um, 
so much to reminisce about um, California. I was talking about going back to the 1960s and how he's always had a love affair with California wine and how they present can present good value. When he's talking about Gallo's Burgundy, uh, Hearty Burgundy, which is just, it's just a good fruity wine, and then talking about high-end wines as well, which are also fantastic. And then Richard talking about how he really loves the Lodi and the people and the climate and just the, the style of the wines being produced. So a real, just a positive reflection on California wine. Yes, it was really nice hearing uh, the perspective from Oz and Richard, uh, kind of that UK point of view, but Oz really providing the, you know, wine lover full of, you know, the tasting experience, the stories behind the wines, and Richard really offering a business perspective. And so combined, it really offered a pretty uh, comprehensive uh, view of California wine as it's known in export markets, like important ones like the UK. Absolutely. And there were critical of some aspects in which California can improve. So it wasn't just kind of a, a love-in. Uh, some really good, solid advice on how California wineries can market their wines even better than they do already. And to our listeners, if you want to catch that episode, uh, the California Wine Institute will upload it to their YouTube website shortly. So that'll be available there in case you ever want to check it out. Yep, highly recommend doing so. And then finally, in our week in wine, and Katie, you were working at the harvest on Saturday, um, which was good hard work for you, uh, just if you're not busy enough already, and um, dealing with some grapes which might or might not have smoke taint and really trying to get the quality as high as possible. Yeah, you know, it, it really is interesting because you find some lots of wine, of grapes that come in and they look beautiful, perfect fruit, and then others not so great. And it's all about, you know, now what they're kind of referring to as the 2020 vintage is it's sort of the winemaker's vintage, you know, and the fact that uh, some corrections need to be make, made in the winery to limit the effects uh, that the smoke and the ashes had on the fruit. And there's lots of research being done, uh, lots of new things coming out. And I think all the winemakers are just trying to stay abreast of the latest and greatest information. So lots of webcasts going on, um, trying to provide information. But there's also a lot, you know, with that, there's a, there's a lot of questions still. Uh, you know, we have lots of new tools and, and new practices that, that winemakers can do, but it, there's still a lot of question about what's going to be most effective and if that's going to be effective in the long term. Definitely a learning experience for everyone. And we expect the 2020 vintage to be um, a little um, little smaller than the last two bumper vintages. Uh, challenges ahead. Smaller, yes. But like I said, the fruit that was coming in that looked super healthy looked very good. So we could have some great quality, just perhaps less of it. I look forward to tasting the, uh, the good wine. And now on with the news. The UK Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, this week gave a public statement providing details on new measures to curtail new rises in cases of COVID-19. This included forcing pubs, bars and restaurants to close at 10pm, a measure deemed both pointless and damaging by the hospitality industry. The restriction is part of a plan to reduce contact between customers. Other measures include staff having to wear face masks when serving, customers having to wear masks as set when seated, table service is mandatory, and people are not allowed to meet in groups of more than six. Most of these measures were previously recommended, but are now enforceable by law. Although many MPs from all parties have been critical of the government bringing in rules such as these without consulting Parliament. Furthermore, 
Hospitality menus must provide access to a QR code, which guests can use to register to track positive cases, although it is not a legal requirement to make use of the QR code. Criticism from the hospitality industry stemmed from the fact that they do most of their business in the evening, with chef Gary Usher of London restaurant Sticky Walnut saying that they would lose 50% of their business due to the earlier closing, and that in effect, being forced to close at 10 o'clock means that their last reservation would have to be at 8 o'clock. Adam Byatt of Trinity, also in London, said, To restrict the already suffering hospitality sector is bad enough but to inflict a blanket restriction on such a varied sector shows a lack of understanding at the highest level. Pointing out that restaurants, bars, and pubs all have different seating and service options. And to sum up the pessimism in the industry, it was estimated that 23% of pubs in the UK could close, an estimate made before the 10pm curfew came into effect. And in Scotland, the restrictions go even further, as students have been told they cannot go to pubs and bars while people are not allowed to socialise with members of other households. There have been a large number of positive tests at Scottish universities, with the belief that students, who are generally safe from the virus, are spreading it to more vulnerable sections of the population. So the question really is, is what difference does a 10pm curfew make? I mean, I know you and I have been joking about you know, coronavirus, uh, going to sleep at 10pm. Um, but seriously, you know, how... How is that going to make a difference? And, and how do these restrictions compare to us here in California? Because we're still battling with kind of back and forth between indoor dining and outdoor dining. Um, masks recommended, but not necessarily enforced in all places. And and each restaurant entity kind of ha- calls their own shots and makes their own rules a lot of the time. Yes, 10 p.m. does seem an arbitrary time. I understand um, restaurants and bars closing earlier. Because the later people are out, the more they drink, the more um, interaction they have. So I can understand the earlier closing time, but I'm not sure why 10pm has been chosen. And most pubs, for instance, close at 11pm anyway. So that extra hour doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. Um, I also do understand the table service restrictions. I think that makes complete sense. But I also think it's very easy to enforce in a bar, just as it is in a restaurant. And although I do miss the um, experience of sitting at a bar and having that kind of pub experience, it does make sense to go to a table to be seated and to be served at that table so you're not just bumping into people etc etc and so some of those restrictions make sense but at the same time they've been introduced kind of randomly without really much information without much guidance and without much help to the restaurateurs and the the bar owners who have been really struggling these last six months This week, several major global whiskey producers distance themselves from the Whiskey Bible, which is self-published each year by Jim Murray, as the language used in his reviews was described as sexist. Whiskey writers Philippe Schreberg and Becky Paskin drew attention to some of his descriptors and major producers such as Jack Daniels, Jim Beam Centauri, and Diageo quickly disassociated themselves from reviews of their products. A whiskey from Welsh distiller Penderin, incidentally an all-female producer, was described as, If this was a woman, I'd want to make love to it every night, and in the morning, and afternoon, if I could find the time, dot dot dot, and energy, dot dot dot. A whiskey by Glenn Morangi received the description, If whiskey could be sexed, this would be a woman. 
Every time I encounter Morangi Artisan, it pops up with a new look, a different perfume, and mood. It appears not to be able to make up its mind. But does it know how to pout, seduce, and win your heart? Beam Centauri stated that they had halted all promotions surrounding the latest edition and will no longer promote the World Whiskey of the Year accolade. They stated that they will evaluate any future collaborations based on commitment to meaningful change from the author in the future and that it was extremely disappointed by Murray's language. Diageo commented that the book does not represent their values. Murray himself said, quote, whiskey deals with sensuality, so therefore for some whiskeys I may refer to sex, because that is what the whiskey may remind me of. If it does, then I say so. If people can't handle that, then fine. Don't buy the whiskey Bible. If I'm upsetting the woke, the intolerant, the humorless, the pompous, and the whiskey snobs, then I'll lose no sleep over that. End quote. So, Murray's not doing himself many favors here, is he? He is not. And he says um, himself, don't buy the Whiskey Bible. And so I'm okay with that. Um, and hearing you um, read um, those quotes, those descriptors, and his, also his defense, uh, just brings home how inappropriate that language is and how unnecessary as well. There's many, many ways to describe whiskey and wine. And I really hate it when usually male critics uh, use this language. It's not really appropriate, and I don't think it's really necessary or useful. Well, what it really shows is a lack of vocabulary. As you said, there are many descriptors one can use, and if he feels that he can only uh, use these references to sex and to women in general, then I would say that it's an author I would well overlook. Yes, and um, I was mentioning this to a friend of ours yesterday, and she's just shaking her head in disbelief, and she said, they're a dying breed. They don't realize it, but um, no one tolerates them anymore. Here's to that. Back in the UK, borough wine merchants in London have launched a range of 25 wines with a zero-waste focus under the brand name of Artisan. They come in three formats, all of them eco-friendly. There's a returnable bottle, vino tap, and refillable kegs, and many of the wines are vegan or biodynamic. The wines are sourced from small producers from around the world, including Beaujolais, the Southern Rhone, Tuscany, and Portugal. The returnable bottles are bottled in London after being shipped in bulk, and customers are encouraged to return them for reuse. Vinotap is an alternative to bag-in-box, made with stainless steel and again returnable. Likewise, the 33-litre kegs can be returned and reused. Muriel Chatel of Borough Wines commented, We know that the bottle is a familiar and much-loved way of serving wine, yet this traditional model is not the most sustainable. So commercially, this seems very spot on, as uh, customers are very kind of sustainable aware. Yes, definitely a sign of the changing landscape of uh, packaging models. And, you know, it's about time, like the beer industry has done with growlers, for example, for some time now, uh, they've implemented this uh, reusable container that consumers can go back to their favorite brewery and have them refilled. Uh, it's something that works really well for consumers, works really well for the brewery, and is a, a sustainable option. Uh, so I'm very excited to see that the wine industry is finally getting on board, and I think what we, as you've said, Matthew, there's the consumers more interested in, in being a part of this uh, fight for sustainability to kind of reduce their carbon footprint. Um, and so with the bag and box and we see wine in pouches now, but this is something I feel could bridge that gap between 
these sort of bag and box uh, pouch wines and the glass bottle, because in fact, you know, th- these could be glass um, vessels, uh, just something that's returnable and reusable. In a way, it's almost going back to the past because wine always used to be shipped in bulk and bottled um, by the merchant or the uh, distributor. So going back to that. And also um, here in California, consumers would often uh, go to the winery, get their jug, fill it up, drink it, go back, fill it up, and so on and so forth. So going going back to those um, past sustainable models, back to the future. And now for our wine of the week, which is Katie. Domaine de Fa, en basse, Beaujolais 2018. A wine from one of our favorite regions, Beaujolais. It's made by Maxime and Antoine Greyot, uh, sons of acclaimed Northern Rhone producer Alain Greyot. They bought eight hectares of land in northern Beaujolais in 2011 in the cruise of Saint-Amour and Fleury, farming biodynamically from the outset. The slopes the vineyards are located on are called Côte de Bessé, hence the name of the wine, En Bessé, while the name of the winery Domaine de Fa comes from the farm their grandmother grew up in. This is a great introduction to Beaujolais, fresh, floral, fruity, and crunchy. Uh, approachable now, but which can last another three to five years, I think. What do you say, Matthew? Yeah, I really enjoy this wine. It's only $25, which I think is a good price for a wine of this quality. And the two brothers, Maxime and Antoine, are pretty exciting. They're continuing the work their father has done in really promoting the Northern Rhone. It's high quality. And so they're making wine there uh, separately. And then they have this uh, Beaujolais project as well, which um, is a lot of fun, I think. Very attractive label too, kind of modern and contemporary, but not too, uh, too weird. And um, yeah, it's just a really exceptional wine and everything that's great about Beaujolais. And if you can hear our dog being annoying in the background, it's because Beaujolais is his favourite wine as well. He always loves to smell it. He just loves that kind of pure fruitiness of Gamay. And so he's a bit angry that he doesn't have any to smell right now. Yeah, we have found him to be more of a beer dog than anything, but Beaujolais does get his tail wagging. Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio! Cheerio!